让生命历历，虚空粉碎。Chan Chronicles, Venerable Master Shenhua's life and legacy kept alive through stories told by his senior disciples. In this episode, we learn about the concept of filial respect and how it plays an important role in Master Hua's journey to becoming a monk. Reverend Hung Shur gives us some insights into what filial respect means and what it doesn't mean. It's appropriate for children to acknowledge their parents' gifts to them. I, I say it that way because it's not obey me. It's not obedience, and it's not a kind of a, a subservience and submission. It's not that. It's, it's not a sense of you have more power than I do, and I have to acknowledge that. No, it's from the heart. It's kindness. I've been given to greatly, and I want to reconnect with my roots. Trees that drink deep from the groundwater grow tall and stand strong. Right? Humans the same. The Chinese say、uh, trees stand on their roots, and humans stand on the roots that are our parents. I'm your host, Fabrizio Alberico. Don't forget to check out our website, DharmaRadio.org, for useful links, inspiring music. Including a couple of brand new tracks from Reverend Hungshur's upcoming CD, and of course additional information on the many organizations that carry on Master Hua's legacy. We are coming to you today from the dining hall of the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, and I'm sitting here with Reverend Hung Shur. Last week we talked about Master Hua and the cultural context that he grew up in in China at the time, early 1900s. And we talked about how he was a filial son and actually sat at his mother's grave for a period of three years. We're going to talk a little bit more about、um, those early years for Master Hua in China, and I wonder if you could. Talk a little bit more about this idea of filiality and how it was an important aspect of Master Hua's upbringing and his life, right up until his very end. Sure, the, this is an interesting and really important aspect of of Chinese civilization, and I might say Indian as well, is the notion of keeping the connection between generations. And I was raised in in the '60s in the Midwest when once you got your Once your 16th birthday came around and you got your driver's license, you would take the keys to the family station wagon and drive away. And the idea was you wanted to establish yourself as an independent unit as soon as possible. And the fact that you did have parents was incidental. More important was becoming your own person. You know, I know who I am. I'm loving it. That that's a part of our mythology in the West is that one person, one vote. And There's no sense that history supports that notion. Traditionally, the societies that stay together—let's say India, for example, China, for example—those cultures all have a profound connection between generations. And in in Buddhism, there's a sense that the highest expression—now this is the Mahayana tradition speaking—the the highest 
expression of your humanity is called the bodhi resolve, the bodhicitta, the thought that you have the potential for deep wisdom and complete compassion inside you. And you have to resolve to uncover that. That's the bodhi resolve. And where does that where does that wisdom and compassion come from? It comes from connecting with, and this is the terminology we use, right? This is the jargon term, is you connect with all living beings. You, quote, take living beings across. That's from, from suffering to nirvana. When that work is done, Buddhahood accomplishes itself. So from this point of view, uh, a perfected human being is a Buddha. A Buddha is someone whose humanity has been uncovered and perfected to the ultimate point. There's no other Buddha. So best possible person is a Buddha. Now, how do you take living beings across? How do you connect with living beings? Well, the first place that this traditional view starts is with your own flesh and blood. And so the point of view in these traditional societies tells the child growing up that behind you, as you sit here in your chair, as you sit behind the wheel of your family station wagon, or now it's your electric car, you know, as you're heading down the freeway, there are two people behind you. You came from the union of mom and dad, right? Every child is the issue of parents, no exceptions. I mean, there are, there are test tube babies, right? But that's not the dominant protocol. It's parents give birth to children, okay. Behind those two parents are two more people. Their parents are behind. Each of those two people are two more people. So we're knit into this web of humanity. And when you connect in a wholesome way to to that line, to that fabric of humanity, uh, supporting and, and nurturing each, that's how you manifest your virtue. And virtue is the key word here. And virtue is not, doesn't mean goody-goody. From this point of view, traditional point of view, virtus is strength. It's the same root. It's virility, you know, virile, strong strength. So um, this is how the, the traditional society gave this definition. And filiality, this way, the idea of repaying parents' kindness is it needs a whole bunch of explanation here in the West, which is strange because it's an idea that's been around a long time. People ask me, what did you get from your meditation? Are you enlightened? Have you ended your frustration? Though wise men and women who woke up All those I reviewed Said the highest state Is a wish to repay A heart of gratitude Thank you to the universe Thank you to the earth and sky May not repay my parents' kindness But every day I try So here's Master Xuanhua, who was the the generation before the generation that created, that took on communism in China. 
This, he was born in 1918, which was seven years into the Republican period, the, the dynastic cycle that had been part of Chinese history for 5,000 years ended in 1911. Sun Yat-sen came along, the father, the father of the Republic, and Chinese culture took on a, uh, kind of entered the global view at that point. So the traditional views yielded then, but this notion of filiality was very much alive in Master Hua's Manchurian, northeastern China uh, society. May not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. May not repay my teachers' kindness, but every day I try. So his teacher, Master Hua, was. Let me step back a bit. The story that I understand is as they talk about his life as a farming child, child of a farming community in northeastern China, was that at age 10, he already had this awareness of death because he'd seen a, a, a dead baby, a human baby by the roadside, wrapped in, a, in a, a bamboo mat. And who knows why she had died, but he saw her, he was disturbed, asked his uncle, uncle said, that's death. Death happens to everyone, it's natural. Master Hua's curiosity immediately said, who can avoid this, who can escape death. Kind of echoing the Buddha's own story, mm -hmm. the prince, Prince Siddhartha. So he connected that uh, there was a way to end birth and death, that's the jargon phrase, to go from samsara to nirvana, and that it had to do with your own personal virtue, which was an internal process. You uncover your virtue, that's how you cultivate. So this intrigued him, and, and his father, his, his uh, uncle, who was a Buddhist, said, well, you probably need to repay your parents' kindness. You should, the Chinese say, you should recognize the gifts they've given you, and then find a way to repay. So Master Hua, at age 10, hit upon the idea that he would bow to his parents. He would make a prostration to them. This was accepted in Asian society. Everybody bows. We don't do it in the West. We bow our heads in prayer, maybe, but that's about as far as we go. In uh, India, you palms together Anjali and Namaste, and and in China, you you do what's called Wu Ti Tou Di Kotou. You bow your head to the ground, you make a prostration. You do it on birthdays. You do it on New Year's. That's a good thing to do. It's appropriate for children to acknowledge their parents' gifts to them. Now, I, I say it that way because it's not obey me. It's not obedience, and it's not a kind of a, a subservience and submission. It's not that. It's, it's not a sense of you have more power than I do, and I have to acknowledge that. No, it's from the heart. It's kindness. I've been given to greatly, and I want to reconnect with my roots. Trees that drink deep from the groundwater grow tall and stand strong, right? Humans the same. The Chinese say, uh, Trees stand on their roots, and humans stand on the roots that are our parents. So that was his idea. He started to bow. So he would bow to his parents, and the parents, as the story goes, would say, just, just be good, just listen to us. You don't have to bow. Don't do that. That's too weird. And he would say, no, I'm going to bow to you anyway, because I really want to repay the debt that is so real to me that I see. So he went out into the yard and continued to bow. And he would bow hundreds of times a day, 800 bows in the morning, 800 bows at night, they say. That's the story. And he didn't start with 800. He 
bowed to his parents, then he, he acknowledged that he wanted to find a teacher in the future. He bowed to his future teacher, whom he hadn't met. And then he bowed, he knew about Buddhas, and he, well, I'll bow to the Buddha, maybe I'll see the Buddha. And he bowed to good people, and then he thought, well, what about the people who don't have anybody to bow, don't know how to bow, I'll bow on their behalf to Buddhas and sages. So bit by bit, the bows continued. So he did that for 10 years. He was a, a remarkably stubborn young kid, apparently. So um, here's Master Hua, and last time we talked about uh, how he, when his mother passed away, she, she said to him before she died, she said, I, I know you want to be a monk. Uh, don't do it now. Wait till I'm gone. You can take care of me while I'm alive, and then after I die, you're on your own. So uh, he did that. He didn't go off to be a monk the way he wanted to be. When his mother died, he stayed by her graveside for three years. During that time, he um, went to the local monastery called Three Conditions Temple and, be and be became a Buddhist. He did what's called taking refuge. And taking refuge in this Mahayana tradition is the equivalent of baptism or christening, depending on your Christian tradition. And uh, or it's a little bit like a bar mitzvah, but not quite the same if you're Jewish. So anyway, he became a Buddhist, and he took refuge in the Buddha, and the Dharma, and the Sangha, and that's to say, uh, a uh, recognition that you're the ultimate harbor, the safe haven for your soul, is wisdom, and principle, and a community of like-minded fellow seekers. So that's how you take refuge. And uh, it's a ceremony that we still do here in, in America. Uh, it was carried on by Master Hua. So after his, Master Hua's three years of filial uh, observance by his mother's grave concluded, he became a Buddhist monk. He went back to uh, Three Conditions Temple and had his head shaved. Now, the monk who he took refuge with was named Changzhi, Venerable Master Changzhi, and the monk that he took, that he became a novice under, his, his head-shaving teacher was a monk called Changren. The three of them, Changzhi, Changren, and Master Xuanhua, his name back then was Dulun, Dulun. When he took refuge, he got a Dharma name, An Si, Peace and Kindness, and his name, when he shaved his head, became on his monk's name, his monastic name, which means the, the wheel of Dharma that takes us across, the turning, the, the wheel that crosses over. So under those names, he was now part of the three conditions with these other two monks. Interestingly enough, both masters Changzhi and Changren were filial sons before they left home. In fact, Changren stayed by his mother's grave for three years and then his father's grave for three years. Now, this, I mean, in North America, that would sound like it fell off the moon, that kind mm -hmm. of practice. Who in the world would do that, right? But in 
in the China of the, the, the early um, Republican era, somebody who would do this was considered uh, good to the extreme. This, clearly, this was sacrificing. Physical discomfort, he didn't always have food to eat. Sometimes people would just forget that he was up there, or it froze after a particularly heavy snowfall in Manchuria. Nobody could get up there, so he was on his own. And of course, there were mosquitoes, and there were wolf dogs, and there were snakes, and, and uh, it was brutal. But someone who was this kind of motivated and committed was considered saint-like. So that was the status that he achieved while he was still a teenager. They're uh, practicing filial respect by his mother's grave. Mm -hmm. Unusual guy. Mm -hmm. And certainly from a, a Western perspective, a rational perspective, it seems pretty irrational to, to kind of devote three years of your life to dissolving yourself. But uh, that's actually a big part of this lineage and big part of this practice is to dissolve this sense of ego identity in a, in a a master that is well known to some is Master Empty Cloud. Can you tell us how Master Hua first encountered Master Empty Cloud? Right. Well, here's here's a theme. Um, I was raised in the early, you know, in the fifties and sixties, the early sixties in in America, Midwest in Ohio, and filiality was just not on the horizon. You. Of course, you wanted to be good to your parents, and they expected you to be good. But that was a time of rebellion. That was a time of anything establishment, you had to tear down the walls. And the, key, the male role models then were 007, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and John Wayne, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. Mm -hmm. You know, tough as a saddle, and, and uh, in like flint and shaft, no one understands him but his baby. <laughs> you know? So uh, movie heroes, these men who were profoundly alienated and broken from any sense of connection. Um, this was a post-war time, and somehow, uh, if you you know you could, there are many 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 books and theories about the uh, about America in particular. I'll just talk about North America because that was where I grew up. Um, People, the, the, the greatest generation fought against tyranny in Europe and in Japan and then came back to post-war America where uh, people had, the men in particular, had seen the horrors of war. And what did they look for? They looked for, I suppose, wealth as, as a way, never again. You know, we don't want to go down that road again of tyranny and, and dictatorship uh, so what's it about? Well, let's um, try to, the, the things we fought for, let's make them available to everybody. And so the corporate world, the uh, gray flannel suit, um, the uh, psychotherapy and advertising, and the idea of life was about accumulating material, that was the late 40s and the 50s. And people very quickly discovered there was no satisfaction there. So a lot of confusion about uh, the established values, which gave birth to this anti-hero idea. Men who said, gee, the things you're telling me I should want, I, I've, I've tasted them and there's nothing there. I, I'm losing myself. And so the loner, the fugitive, the you can't fence me in, 
I need to, to establish my own law. The horrors of war is what we created with, from wealth. I don't want that. So we had this idea of the outlaw. And so in the West, we were profoundly alienated. Those words came about then. And here, the traditional view in China was that every individual is knit into this fabric. You are in your skin. At this minute, you are child of parents. Chances are you're parents of children. You are a brother to your brothers and sisters. You're a sibling. You are student of teachers. Sometimes you are a teacher of students. You are friends of friends. You are citizens of a country. You are members of a workforce. You are part of a team. You're part of an orchestra. You, you know, your bowling league. All those relationships are in you at this minute. And the path to wholesome maturity comes from recognizing that. Okay, that was kind of the conflict of values. So Master Hua, um, from the three years uh, of filial observance by his mother's grave, um, decided he wanted to fully ordain. He wanted to become a bhikshu, a Buddhist monk. So he made his way down to Putoshan, to Mount Potala, which is an island belonging to Guanyin Bodhisattva in the East China Sea. And it took him a long journey to get there. He became a monk, lots of adventures, many stories there. And the tradition in China was what you wanted to do as a monk was go find a Kalyanamitra, a good spiritual friend. The Chinese called it a Dashan Jirsha. And the Buddhist world was pretty, uh, pretty well informed about where they were. The ones who were considered to have the Tao the, the enlightened monks were few and far between, but you could find them. And so you wanted to go get close to a real teacher who had embodied the Tao, who had realized the Tao, and who could teach it to you. So Master Hua went looking for the, um, the number one teacher in China at the time, uh, a monk whose name was Empty Cloud, Xu Yun, the Venerable Master, Elder Master Xu Yun. And there's a story for multitudes of podcasts. He's not well known in the West for the very same reason. He, he was behind the Iron Curtain, behind the bamboo curtain, you could say, in China. But some of the realities of the life of Master Empty Cloud are just startling. He lived to be 120, died in 1959. And uh, he, had, uh, he made a pilgrimage from Putoshan, that very same monastery in the East China Sea, all the way across China to five peaks, Wu Taishan, a thousand mile journey. And in this, in the process of getting there, he took a bow to the ground every three steps. It was a three steps, one bow pilgrimage across China. The motive for doing that was his mother died in childbirth. To bring him into the world, the start of his life was the end of her life. And he wanted to create that connection uh, of wholesomeness between himself and his mother, but she was gone. So he, I don't know, guilt, guilt was probably not the motivator, but he acknowledged that he had a debt to her and he had no way of repaying it. So he thought, I will make a pilgrimage to repay my mother's kindness. And all of the goodness of that, I will dedicate to her uh, happy rebirth.
So again, filial motive. So here's another monk who had that same filial desire to connect, connect. And this is interesting. I think this needs to be said. I'll say more about empty cloud, but um, the notion is, I mean, it seems so far away, this whole concept from how I grew up with, uh, you know, loners and self-made men as my heroes. Master, the, the idea is that being a mother is a blessing and a curse at once because mothers nurture. Mothers give birth and then unconditionally love their offspring. Sons and daughters, moms, love them their whole lives. And you can be a terrible, rotten person and your mom will forgive you because she connects that you are part of her. She gave you life and, and you're the most beautiful child, you know. This is the, uh, the, the beauty, the power of the maternal. And so a Buddhist who would say, hmm, I want to take living beings across. I want to bring every single Buddha nature in a body if you think about what's inside, no matter whether it's uh, a male, a female, no matter the race, no matter the social status, even non-humans, particularly non-humans. So be you an insect, be you a fish or a bird or a mammal, a ghost or a god, I want to take you across because your Buddha nature is still seeking wholeness, seeking great compassion. So somebody would say, who is my mom? Well, she is a soul seeking liberation, but she's attached to me. I am her obstacle to liberation. I know my mom. She loved me. She would give her life for me and at the expense of her own cultivation. I want to set her free from me. So I will stay by her graveside, cultivate goodness transferred entirely to the relationship between me and my mom so that she, next life, doesn't have to find me again. And I won't have to have her as mom again, not because I don't want her, but because I love her so much, I want to set her free. Mm -hmm. When I first ran across that statement, it was, oh my goodness. Number one, there's this understanding about reincarnation, that we'll see each other again. And that my life now is an expression of a connection from the past. And look at the roles. I look at my mom, you know, and sure enough, she, uh, I would be a, I'd been a monk for 35 years and my mother would be in Toledo and I would call her on the phone and I, I knew what she wanted to ask me. She wanted to ask me whether I'd been eating my greens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I said, Mom, you've been to the monastery. There are these 30... There are only greens. <laughs> I'm a vegetarian. All these women here, you've had the vegetarian food. You know how delicious it is, but you have to ask that question, don't you? Mm -hmm. Well, I just wanted to know because I, you know, Mom, I'm fine. How about you? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your spiritual development, Mom. Oh, well, don't worry about me, you know. So that's what moms do. And so this filial urge on the, on the part of monks has some roots. There's a sense that I acknowledge that for you to be my mom means good chance you have an emotional attachment to me. Mm -hmm. I am killing you 
because I'm your son. But that tie, you the mom, me the child, is not a given. That's something that we created together. Can we untie that tie mm. in a wholesome way? Not that I don't want you, it's that I want you to be free of me. Mm-hmm. So I would like to repay that kindness, untie the mother-son, let this birth be the last one of me from you. Please move on past me. I'm fine, you go on to nirvana. Mm. That's the filial urge that motivated these. So there's a whole, you could say, theology, a non-theos theology behind this filiality. It's not just goody-goody. Mm-hmm. There's a genuine seeing of a connection, of a relationship that is voluntarily tied and is joyful and blessed and loving, but what if mom could be free of me? And in the next birth, just see her way to cultivation and not have to have me as her, you know, the dead weight around her neck. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the thought behind it. And Master Empty Cloud, by golly, you know, bowed for three years across China to repay his mother's kindness. And interestingly, this is how the story goes. He reached his destination, Five Peaks Mountain, and had a dream. And uh, in the dream, he was meditating after he got there to the monastery destination. He was meditating at night by a, what's called a liberating life pond, a big, uh, like a small pond in the monastery where you could set turtles and fish free and uh, give them a second chance at life. And he was meditating out there. And in his meditative state, dreamlike but not a dream, kind of a lucid dream, a dragon came down. And dragons are big in Chinese Buddhism. They came down and knelt down and Master Empty Cloud's spirit, or he got on the dragon's back and the dragon flew up and up and up and up and uh, went to a place in the clouds and looked through uh, a, uh, there was a castle-like structure. He looked through the window, and here was his mother, uh, sitting happily in a clean, well-lighted place for, for uh, weaving or whatever she was doing, and he saw that she was happy. She was not suffering at all. And he wanted to talk to her, but she couldn't hear him. It was a, just a spectator. And so the dragon brought him back, set him down, and there he was meditating again. But he had had that, you know, a psychotherapist, I'm sure, would have a heyday saying, well, it's projection, you know, that's mm-hmm. your wish. But nonetheless, he said that was a spontaneous experience that he had at the end of his pilgrimage. So he felt like it was a success. Mm. And so here's this notion of filial children. So you talk about these ties between mother and son. Are there really similar ties between teacher, student, monks in a, in a particular lineage? Is there that sort of linkage? There's a, there's a particular popular sutra in the Chan school. It's called the Six Patriarchs Dharma Jewel Platform Sutra. Uh, it's a, a sutra from the, the Tang Dynasty, the 7th century in 8th century, 9th and 10th century in Buddhism, in in China at that time. The opening chapter of that sutra talks about how the fifth patriarch wanted to find the sixth patriarch, wanted to get his successor. And his method was a poetry contest. He tested their wisdom to see who was ready to, to, quote, receive the robe and hold. 
Long may was the patriarchy held the rope and bow. Passed on from Bodhidharma generations ago. He wanted to hand them off. He felt the time had come. He made a poetry contest to try and find the one. Everything's a test, you know, to see what you will do. Staking what's before your eyes, have to start anew. And at that time in China, the idea was.、Um, India had had 28 generations from the Buddha's time, and the robe and bowl had passed on 28 times. the 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 monk who brought it to China was a monk called Bodhidharma, and Bodhidharma came to China before the Tang in the sixth century, and、uh, it was the the the,、uh, the Liang Dynasty, Liang Wudi, and he、uh, Bodhidharma passed on. The robe and bowl to a monk called Shanhui, who was the second patriarch, and the third and fourth and fifth, and the fifth patriarch, Master Hongren, passed it on to the sixth patriarch. The story goes on. Wang Mei said, "That's pretty good. I think that you will find whoever cultivates that way won't fall far behind." Quietly he told Shun Xiao, "This verse won't do. Though you haven't seen your mind, I can't give the rope to you. Everything's a test, you know. To see what you will do, staking what's before your eyes, have to start anew." So there's an example of how a teaching gets carried on, and the hallmark of that was: had, Have you realized the Tao? Have you another way to say it? Have you seen your own mind and awakened to your nature?、Uh, are you enlightened? And they say, one who is knows one who is. So the story went on that Master Empty Cloud had the Tao. He was the enlightened patriarch of the age. Then out from the kitchen came a quiet young man. Had a drawl, couldn't read a southern barbarian. He said, "I heard there was a contest. I thought I'd have a go. Someone will help me write it down. I'll tell you." Had all these amazing stories of his life that、uh, people passed on. He was a legendary figure. Okay, Master Hua heard those stories and went to seek him, 
and uh, showed up at uh, Nanhua Monastery, the same monastery where the Sixth Patriarch taught, by the way, only 1,300 years later, and saw Mr. Empty Cloud, and Master Empty Cloud looked at him and said, Oh, sure. And he says, so, this is how it is. And Master, Master Shenhua said, this is how it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Oh, sure. Wong Mei said, this robe and bowl I now bestow on you. Your name will be Hui Nong, the one able and wise. They're going to chase you. At the time, he was Dulun, the, the wheel that takes across. And so he stayed with Master Empty Cloud for several years, became one of the teachers at his Vinaya Academy. One of the, he was the head of the the Vinaya Academy, teaching monks to be monks, teaching the, the precepts and deportment and all. Master Empty Cloud said, people are inviting me to go to, to America. I can't go. All of my karma is tied up with China. You go instead. And so in 1948, he sent three monks, uh, Master Xuanhua, a monk called Master Jirding, and another monk whose name Fa Yuan, I believe, sent the three of them to the West to bring the Dharma, to create monasteries, to, to keep the, the tradition going. And uh, when 1956, uh, Master Hua in Hong Kong received a package with a scroll that said, I hereby bestow upon you the ninth patriarch lineage of the what's called the Weiyang school the Chan tradition, which Master Shuya and Empty Cloud held, five, had five schools in it. And the, the smallest and the least known of them, a tradition that had stopped in China, he, re, he started up again, and it was called the Weiyang school. Master Hua was the, uh, the ninth patriarch of that lineage. And three years later, Master Empty Cloud entered Nirvana, 1959. So. Master Hua definitely had conditions with him. That concludes this episode of Chan Chronicles. Many thanks go out to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and Reverend Hong Shur for their hospitality. Please go to our website, dharmaradio.org, for much more, including those two new songs you heard on this podcast. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you'll be sure to receive new episodes of Chan Chronicles as soon as they're available. Amitofo.